Welcome to another episode of your Wild and Exposed podcast. Before we begin today's show, we have an exciting announcement from our sponsor, Precision Camera in Austin, Texas, the largest camera store between New York and L.A. Precision Camera is offering Wild and Exposed listeners a free 16 by 24 fine art print of one of your images with free shipping as well within the United States. To get this, go to our website at wildandexposed.com. On our homepage, go to the menu at the top right and go to our sponsors page. There, you'll find a quick link to Precision Camera. And once you're on their page, go to the option for a virtual consultation with one of their friendly and knowledgeable staff. They'll be more than happy to discuss and answer any questions that you might have for gear that you're interested in. At the conclusion of your visit, they'll give you a coupon code that will give you access to order this free 16 by 24 fine art print of one of your images. By supporting Precision Camera, you're also supporting your favorite podcast, Wild and Exposed. Now, on with today's show. Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed podcast. Tonight we've got a special treat for you. Actually, we have got a repeat guest, and he doesn't know it yet. But his episode was the most popular episode that we've ever had on Wild and Exposed. Um, oh, my goodness. It was pretty far-reaching due to the story and the content. So I would encourage you all to go back and listen to, if you have not, uh, Scott Wilson's podcast. And I believe it was in way back in season two, um, toward the tail end of season two. But Scott Wilson, welcome back to Wild and Exposed. How are you? I'm great, Ron. Jason, it's good to see you both. Um, Jason, to finally meet you after so much kind of social media interaction. Ron, to yeah. see you again. No, it's, it's great to be back. And you just blew me away with that um, most ever viewed um, uh, status. So um, fact, thanks for sharing that. What a, what a story. Yeah, I wanted to save it for when you were actually back on. <laughs> <laughs> Throw me off my stride right at the beginning. <laughs> Try to embarrass you a little, you know. <laughs> so, Scott, I think you got off the hook on this first question that we're going to ask you. Uh, the first time you were on, I may be wrong, but we started opening the podcast with your favorite outdoor experience. And I don't remember, but I don't think we were asking that question when you were on the first time. Wow. <clears throat> I've got two that are popping up. And uh, one is a um, little bit nostalgic. So uh, it's hard to beat the atmosphere around the Isle of Skye off the coast of Scotland. And I appreciate it. I'm Scottish, so you would say that. But seriously, people travel from all over the world. And as a landscape photographer, as well as wildlife, the atmosphere is just truly unbeatable. And, and it's kind of accessible. You know, Colorado is so expansive. It's hard to to reach some of these places sometimes, but you got on the Isle of Skye and every corner you turn, there's just something amazing there. And then I think if I'm allowed to run closer to home, uh, I'm just captivated by Sandwash Basin in Northwest Colorado. I think you know it's a regular trip of mine. And I mean, I've, I've fallen in love with the wild Mustangs up there. They're a photographic delight, but again, the landscape as well uh, has its own kind of magic and, and quite often I'll just take the wide angle and not even shoot shoot um, at horses so there's just something for everybody up there so that's two special outdoor experiences for me there I think yeah I so I'm not a hundred percent positive about the Isle of Skye but there is an island that uh, there was a photographer on Canon's um, television series uh, Tales of Tales by Light Anyway, he shared an image of and and the story of how he got it. Uh, there's a bird colony on one of the edges. Would that oh, be the wow. same area? I'm. I have a feeling it might not be, but I'm still okay. interested in the story. 
Uh, but they so it could be the same area, but not the same island. There's a lot. Of yeah, it was it was in the UK somewhere, but I'm not 100 mm-hmm. percent certain exactly where it was. But he shared an image, and and the the clouds were just kind of ethereal. They were kind of otherworldly, and all of a sudden, this big launch happened. There was a predator that had come in and and spooked several of the adult birds off the nest, and they came toward him and it, it kind of gave you the sense of that Arthur Hitchcock, the birds story of just this swarm of, you know, seabirds coming at the boat and at the shot in those, in those clouds. It was, it was phenomenal shot. Wow. It may not be the same Island, but I used to visit an Island uh, or a group of islands called the Farn Islands in England, just off the Northeastern coast. And they have a, a colony of puffins there, um, mm-hmm. which obviously comes to nest once a year. And it's just absolutely breathtaking just watching puffins. It's like trying to shoot hummingbirds, though. They're so fast. They are fast. But in, or, in order to reach the puffins, you have to walk through. It's a path. You're, you're, not, you're not causing danger. But the experience you've just described, they basically attack your head. And if, if you haven't been warned in advance to wear a hat, you will end up with a bloody head you know, as they sort of peck you. And they're basically protecting their eggs and their, their nest. But uh, that, that's an amazing experience. Probably the closest I've had to, to what you just described. Yeah, that's, some of those giant bird colonies or avian colonies on the coast are they're a, a spectacle. Yeah. So, Jason. Yeah. Before we get into the meat of it, what have you been up to the last week or so it's a great question um not the last week or so just been busy with work and editing photos um i think i got all caught up which is nice feeling um <laughs> that's never usually the case for me it feels like i've always got a backlog of some kind which is a great problem to have um but all caught up and i'm actually getting ready to head up to the to the tetons this weekend and go try to find some um, grizzly bears to play with so Good. yeah it was active and then it completely died for a while and hopefully they'll be back. We'll see. Yeah, I've I've had some friends that were there the last few days and it's been super slow for them and unfortunately. So it's just the way it goes up there, you know. It is wildlife and they don't they don't play by the rule book, you know. They don't come out and put on a show and <laughs> exactly. play by the clock. So seeing a few good photos come through on um, social from Yellowstone. Um, so I, don't, I mean I don't know if that how how the two areas compare for sort of bear sightings, but um, they seem to be getting a few there. Yeah, though no, they're both really they're both sorry, Ron. They're oh, both good. really good. Um, yeah, I went and spent a, a couple of weeks ago up on the north end of the park in Yellowstone, and did okay with black bears. I found a few and had some fun, um, but had an incredible badger encounter that I talked about on one of the previous episodes. But um. But yeah, uh, it's always you know you always you're always rewarded when you go out. I think even if it's just having one or two really neat experiences, I can honestly say I've never gone out and not had some kind of really neat experience that I can be grateful for. And even if it's just being out, I'm not at work. I'm out in the wild doing what I enjoy doing. And there's something about that that just helps me clear my head and get you know balanced again. So totally with you on that one. Yeah, yeah for sure. So Scott, just. Real briefly, because we went into your story in depth uh, on the yeah. previous episode. But for those who didn't hear, just real briefly, kind of describe what brought you from being a you know world class landscape photographer into the world of wildlife, and and how that kind of helped you get through some tough times. Sure, happy to tell you, and I, and I can bring you up to date with a little extra chapter at, at the end. Nice. So for those that have heard it all before, but. Uh, Basically, as you say, I was a landscape photographer, absolutely committed. Same sort of feeling as you, Jason, just getting out there alongside a job and just experiencing nature was was just absolutely brilliant. I did shoot wildlife now and again, but not to the same degree as landscape. Those sort of infrequent trips to the Farn Islands were, were probably one of the highlights. But we moved to Colorado in 2015. As a landscaper, again, it was like, wow, I'm just moving to a paradise from, from a landscape point of view. Uh, and then one year later, um, uh, hit with the, the awful kind of, you know, mind-stopping news that had stage four colorectal cancer. And it kind of really threw us, uh, as you'd imagine. We were just getting settled in Colorado. I'd opened up 
in a gallery in Denver showing landscape work and, and then this news just took, took the rug from under us. And at the time, I've got to be honest, photography wasn't the first thing on my mind, but when my oncologist explained that the, the drug I was going to be on called panitumumab meant I just simply couldn't expose myself to sunlight at all. Uh, and it kind of knocked the landscape desires on the head a little bit. And then I realized that, you know, photography is my therapy. It's for all of us. It's, it's kind of how, how we get through tough times. And this was the toughest of, of tough times. So I started looking for alternatives, realized we have this abundance of parks on our doorsteps full of wildlife and basically started driving through them and photographing wildlife from the, the, the sort of shade or the protective shade of my car. Uh, hence the, the the book which came from that, which was called Through the Window, and 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 basically that that was my therapy. It was how I got through. I would sit in the chair at the at the uh, treatment centre and then waiting for something to happen in nature, and it was just an amazing place to kind of con contemplate um, at what what was going on and how I was going to get through it. So I don't know if that was the short version or if that was a bit too long, but uh, hopefully that gives you a feel for yeah, that was uh, uh, perfect actually. Yeah. And then so. Update us. Well, the, the chapter, yeah. yes. So I, I, I get scans every um, three months. Uh, uh, actually, that's now been extended to six months, which is already a, a good sign. And I just had a scan in April, which means I'm now four years in the clear, um, which is um, obviously five years the big kind of holy grail target. When I was diagnosed, you're given a sort of 10 to 14% chance of survival, but I'm kind of really, really on the way there but I have a great friend 10 years younger than me diagnosed with the exact same condition at the same time but 10 years younger in fact he had one year old uh, uh, kids that just you know at, at that point so you can imagine the complete turmoil in their life but we've both uh, just come through that clean scan so we went away to celebrate uh, this weekend just the two of us um, in Colorado down at the sand dunes and it was basically just two survivors kicking back. We didn't talk about cancer once. We just talked about uh, stars and astrophotography and just shot the Milky Way to death and then came home again. So it was an absolutely beautiful experience and uh, a nice way for both of us to, to try and put uh, our traumatic experience behind us. We're, we're realistic. We know we've got to you know, uh, still, still be careful and, and think it through. But just to focus only on life and photography was just a, a wonderful weekend. That's awesome. Were you guys able to photograph still the the full arch? It was getting late, um, and and to be honest, because we were celebrating a little bit, there was we, we weren't always absolutely <laughs> committed to getting up on time and things like that. So so there, there was probably more fun than than dedicated commitment at that point. But we we got some nice shots. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, he That's had excellent. a he or he has. A refurbished 1985 Volkswagen Westphalia camper van, and and it was absolutely stunning, and and it, and it was actually became the perfect prop um, to to put underneath the Milky Way. So we didn't need the full arch; we just needed that kind of lead into the, the tail to yeah. the pod, the pod at the top of his uh, at the top of his van. That's awesome. So you've also you've had some other things uh, happening here recently, and in fact. What about the last six months, correct? Or I know you've probably been working on the, you know, advance of this project, but you've had a big project come up in Denver area. Uh, go ahead and share with us what, what happened there. Yeah, sure. So it's actually even more compressed than, than the six months. So in January, I, I got a phone call from a friend, Tony Eitzel. He and I used to exhibit together in John Fielder's gallery in Denver, and that closed down in 2018. He'd carried on um, uh, uh, exhibiting in Tennyson, which is an area of Denver, but leases just get out of hand, you know, when they get renewed, et cetera. So he was looking for a new place. And he and another artist, uh, Evan Simon, had found some uh, space available for leasing in Denver, just north of Cherry Creek. So, Tony invited me to join he and Evan, and then a fourth, Kevin Schwalbe, has joined us since. So there's now four of us have set up a gallery, or a new collective, as we describe it, called Gallery 6, which is um, very imaginatively named after the street we're in. So we're in two, uh, 2434 
East 6th Avenue in Denver. So that's where the name came from. And it's honestly such a, an exciting project, even despite the pressures of opening a new venture through COVID, which has obviously put a little bit of a, a, a sort of constraint on how, I suppose, how, how energetic we can be about promoting it and inviting people to come in at, at that sort of difficult period. But it's really a, a, an amazingly exciting venture to get involved with. Three other, you know, great guys to be working alongside with. We're very kind of eclectic in terms of style. So I've obviously got landscape and wildlife. Tony's are real. We call it sort of photo noir. You know, you were talking about Hitchcock and the, the birds. Right. Yep. He kind of does that as a modern day interpretation with some of his city scenes and things. And we deliberately didn't make it Scott's Corner and Tony's Corner. You just walk into the gallery and you see an, an eclectic mix of work and it's only the little sign next to it that sort of tells you who it is so so it's going really well Re really exciting as i say but conscious that it's a difficult time so we're certainly hoping the summer and the the as the restrictions fall that we'll start to see a little bit more traffic come through the doors excellent so i'm excited to see that i was down in colorado recently and wanted to try to come by but i didn't get that far south so this fall, for sure, I'm going to make it a point to to get down and see the gallery. I can't wait. Superb, and you know, I mean, I'll I'll be I'll drop things and just come and show you around whenever whenever you can make it. Oh, that'd be great. You I too, Jason. Open invitation. I'm I'm planning on being there in July. I'm not going to wait till the fall. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and if you ever want to do a podcast from there, then then the, oh, from the, the gallery, that'd yours. be great. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah. Get as, as many of you guys on as we could. That'd be fun. Yeah. yeah. It's actually been one of the most encouraging and sort of heartwarming things has been how many photographers have come and visited. Um, and I mean, our vision really was we want a gallery for the public, but we also wanted a space where photographers can come along, share stories and just connect. And there really wasn't anything like that. You know, the, the photo art gallery had closed down in 2018. I was in Robert Anderson's gallery in Denver uh, subsequent to that, but that closed down last year. Um, so just having a space where you can meet and greet and share stories, um, it, that, that's a vacuum. And I think we've just started to fill that a little bit. So I would say in the first two months, 60 to 70% of our visitors were people like us. And, and it's just really, really encouraging to see that. I, I love the fact that you're um, trying to fill a niche like that, you know, because you're right. When I, I've spent quite a bit of time in Colorado and there really is no, you know, quote unquote gathering place to kind of get together. You know, we kind of do it in our own little groups, right? But it'd be fun to have a place to go and um, talk to like-minded folks and hang out a bit and see some really neat work and support each other. You know what I mean? So Definitely. that's and awesome. Talking of support. Talking of support, one of our um, uh, focus areas will be, so if there's four of us in there, but arguably there's space for five, then on a sort of rotation basis, we want to feature uh, other sort of Colorado photographers that maybe haven't had the right exposure or just, just deserve to have their, their work showcased. So that's something we're going to build uh, towards. You know, once COVID declines, we've started to get a little bit of traction, then we'll invite others in to take part. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. So if you're a Colorado photographer, make <laughs> sure that you go down and visit the gallery itself as, and introduce yourself. And then, uh, you know, stay in touch with Scott and the guys and have that potential in the future as they figure out their selection process. That's a great <laughs> idea. What a, What a neat way to give back. You know what I mean? Yeah, we hope so. And and I mean, I, I certainly know how difficult it is to get a, a leg on the ladder and find exposure. Social media is fantastic. It really is. But you can't beat the physical interaction with an image on a wall and having the photographer there to share the story of where that came from. And, and it's a privilege for us to be able to share that story. I love it when people visit and ask questions. But if we can give that opportunity to someone who's sort of starting out or has actually been photographing for a long time, but just hasn't had the exposure that they need, then then I'm delighted to be able to share that. Yeah. That's reason enough right there to go check it out. Not only will you see some, you know, of the great work from you guys, but who knows um, who, you, who you might be featuring at any given time. So, 
So Scott, you opened with the fact that Sandwash is one of your favorite places, and I greatly appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And you know the the opportunities available down there, but there has been some changes take place in that area. Can you kind of fill people in on on what they've done with the wild horses and how that's impacted so, opportunity? Yeah. So I think what you're alluding to is is a roundup. Um, and, and I think that there's kind of two parts to this, Ron, and it kind of goes back to the quantity of horses and the availability of water and food stuff in the land there. So um, the BLM, which owns the land, um, wants to manage the population of horses, and that's reasonable. You know, they, they are they are sharing that land with other wildlife, etc. And there's a limit in terms of the vegetation and waters there to to support that that kind of livelihood. However, there's a couple of other extenuating factors as well. So, so, so the population, we don't believe, has actually got too great. It, it can be managed. Um, but some of the horses were escaping through the sort of southern border because there's no fence there. And they went on to uh, local land, which is owned by farm owners. And that became a little bit of a trigger. Uh, for a roundup. So the um, BLM basically activated a, a roundup in January, but only 10 horses were taken. So it hasn't actually dramatically reduced the population at all. But that's not to say that that's not coming. And if there's about seven or 800 horses max on site, the BLM has a target of possibly lower than 200. So, so the looming threat at the moment is that around 600 horses might well be removed at some point in the future. And I know there's a lot of activity going on from an advocacy point of view, writing to lawmakers, et cetera, to try and protect uh, the, the horses and their environment. So so I, I think um, my read is the BLM's response is is excessive. Um, th- th- there's 160,000 acres of land there. It can clearly sustain a, a larger population that, than they are. Uh, discussing at the moment. So so that becomes a very sort of heated uh, uh, debate around that area. But to just answer the question precisely, the roundup has not taken place beyond those 10 at the start, and and it's now a a threat for the future. If that population is reduced to to below 200, then clearly uh, as a photographer looking for horses, that has an impact uh, uh, on our ability to sort of appreciate the wildlife. But I think that's a secondary question to, to the livelihood of, of the wildlife that's in there in the first instance. If they are rounded up and taken elsewhere, it, it's not a pretty prospect. Um, with that many horses, it's not realistic that all of them are going to find uh, happy homes from an adoption point of view. And, and, and the worst case scenario of slaughter is, is certainly uh, very realistic. And that's when it gets sort of brutally sad um, from that point of view, especially if you've appreciated, and I know you've been up, Jason, and seen the horses there, you know, to, to imagine those wild animals going to, to slaughter is just unthinkable. We've had the the same thing happening in the in Grand Teton National Park with the mountain goats. Uh, they've decided that there is a biological or health risk on bighorn sheep and since mountain goats were not native, they've decided to remove all of them in parts of the park. So it was basically just opened up. Initially, they were just going to have people fly in with helicopters, remove them, and be done with it. Just leave them lay where they were. And they decided to allow people to go in and at least harvest the meat so it wasn't a complete waste. Um but that was a, a point of contention, and they were doing that very quietly, actually. You know, they're supposed to go through a process. There's supposed to be a time for public comment, that kind of thing. I I understand the risk that they were trying to mitigate uh, to the bighorn sheep because bighorn sheep are very susceptible to disease, um, and they are a native species. So I do understand that, but the 100% eradication of a species that has become part of the landscape, I don't necessarily think is is the answer. And, you know, yeah. the, the wild horses, it, that happens all over. But most places, you know, in, in Wyoming, they round them up every year. So yeah. it's not uncommon. They are 
you know, most of them are adopted out. Uh, the unfortunate thing is there's a program also where people can get federal funds to then take them and, and put them on a ranch. But you take a horse that's wild, put them on a ranch. It's not long before they start to get out and cause problems with neighboring ranches. And then you've got a whole new dilemma. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, the, the phrase that I, I think you, you, you really nailed it with is become part of the landscape. So, so, so the sheep that you're describing have become part of the landscape. The wild horses have become part of the landscape. The moose in Colorado aren't technically native, but they become part of the landscape. And I think there would be an outcry if someone had a roundup of moose. But there's just something that sort of says to me, well, the horses are a little bit more feral. No, they're born wild and in and, and law born wild is wild and, and, and I really think that, that there needs to be a sort of an adjustment of the debate and this kind of derogatory they're feral animals therefore they're, they're, they're less deserving than, than a pure native wild animal I think I think that needs to have some sort of adjustment um, so, so I'm agreeing with you and I don't see the wild horses as any different to a moose uh, or, a, or a mountain goat yeah now one of the one of the ten that was removed was it not one of your favorite subjects. So yeah, there, there's there's probably a few stories here. So Picasso is the the big sort of famous name in in San Wash Basin. He's a wild Pinto Mustang. Probably some of my most popular photographs. He went uh, missing uh, in late 2019 and is now presumed to have have passed on. I mean, he he was in his 30s. His son, Van Gogh, they all have names, by the way, which I don't think helps this wild animal debate, to be honest. Uh, but I will agree with <laughs> you there. Yeah, so um, I didn't name them, and it's an easy way to identify them. So Van Gogh is the, is the son of Picasso, clearly the artist theme there linked to paint. And he's one of the horses that's, that very sadly wandered uh, onto the road, and he was uh, hit by a car and died. Sad as that was, it became a real catalyst for what was going on in Sandwash Basin, and that spawned uh, a whole fundraising effort around uh, creating a fence uh, on the southern border, which would stop the animals walking into the road. The BLM intervened with their roundup before that fence had a real opportunity to, to, to be um, fundraised against, and, and the the the. the advocacy group Wild Horse Warriors that was raising the money has now raised all of that money but that sort of uh, smaller roundup went ahead uh, all the same the third horse you might be talking about uh, is War Horse who looks very very like uh, Picasso he's a, a stunning Pinto horse he was actually the first horse to walk into the trap but he was one of two horses that were protected and exempt from the roundup because they're so unique and special in the basin. So he was actually taken by the BLM back up north in the basin and protected from the roundup. So so I don't know if that probably answers your, your question in three different ways, to be honest, Ron. <laughs> it, well, it does, but it, it gives me, you know, an accurate answer. I've heard or, or read, I should say, because I don't, I've never been down there yet, but I've read several different stories on people's Instagram posts about what exactly happened and when those horses were removed and that kind of thing. So I appreciate the, uh, the accurate response and we can alleviate yeah. some of the, some of the stories that are out there. It's a dreadful truth that, that death often you know, amplifies these issues. And it, it was tragic that that horse lost its life, but it raised awareness of the issue dramatically. And, and I'm sure that, they achieved their funding target in, in three at three times the pace they would have otherwise, but because because of that tragedy. Yeah, the the horse de, the horse debate, right? Really tends to be a very uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Polarizing one. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've I've spent some time out here in the West Desert photographing the horses out here, um, and and I, it's a it's an amazing experience. It's fun. I enjoy it. It's uh, um, and I actually haven't been, and I haven't been to the Sandwash Basin yet to see the horses there. But I want to. I was actually going to bug you about that, and maybe you can uh, show me around a little bit. But <laughs> of course, um, anytime. But you know, it's it's interesting because I do. I think it depends on the area too, right? 
BLM is for everybody's benefit, and that's what's hard, is that it, that includes ranchers, it includes um, people that are just out hiking and riding motorcycles and biking and who you, you name it, camping, whatever, right? So I understand the dilemma they get in, um, and it is kind of a sad situation, uh, and, and it's too bad we can't sit down and have a, you know, a good level-headed discussion between both sides of the debate and not getting to a yelling match and come up to a solution that will benefit both the other animals that share that landscape and the horses, because a yeah. lot of times, right, when they round up these horses, to your point, if they don't get, um, you know, a- adopted, they end up in these holding pens that are terrible. And these holding yeah. pens is no place for a horse like this to live either. To to your point, I think there is a level-headed conversation taking place at the moment, and the Wild Horse Warriors, which is one of the advocacy groups there is basically sitting down with the BLM and trying to sort of work out, you know, how, how do we work this through? And, and at, the, at the source of this, one of the major problems is lack of water. And if, if there's not the right amount of water there, they don't get the vegetation, so it doesn't s- sustain the sage-grouse and the horses kind of thing. But the BLM is now supporting the advocacy group to try and re-identify wells that may be closed down, that could be reopened, that might actually create a new water source that means the horses get the, 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 the water that they need, and that then creates a way of sustaining some of the vegetation. So I am genuinely encouraged that some of these conversations are taking place and people are prepared to sort of lower some of the, the anger barrier and, and, and basically ha- have that conversation because it really is the only way forward, I think. That's a great point. And, and that's the point I was going to make. I mean, I see photos of the sandwash through your work and it's just, they're, it's beautiful country. You know, the sagebrush out there seems very healthy and the landscape seems very healthy. But if you come out to the West Desert, you know, um, and photograph those horses, especially any time in the summer, you can see the impact that the horses have on the landscape. And especially because there's very limited water, to your point. Um, you know, and so I think they're actually planning on doing another roundup here in Utah this year out there on that herd. And, uh, you know, I think they rounded up a hundred or so last year. I can't remember, but, um, but to your point, right, it's, that's the difficult part. And there's many wells out there that have already been, um, dug and a lot of them for cattle operations, but the, all the animals in the area use them obviously. But, you know, I was there a couple of years ago and there was only one water source that was obvious and it was a pretty small water source. And the horses all came in, the whole herd. I mean, there was probably two or 300 horses that were coming in to drink this water hole. And by the time they were done drinking, the water hole was empty. You know, the the, the trough was empty, right? And it was – I mean, it would fill up again, obviously. But that's the kind of um, scarcity of the water resource that was out there. So anyways, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting discussion and topic. And I'm glad to hear that maybe, you know, maybe we're going to make some headway forward on it. But. I do hope so, and, it's, and especially this year, it looks like we're facing another drought plus wildfire um, kind of prospect this summer. So they really need to start to find some of these wells and, and, and unlock them sooner rather than later. It's all, I mean, I was there two weeks ago, and, and it's a very kind of dry environment, very different from, that's the northwest corner. I mean, down in Denver, we think we've had a, a wet winter, loads of snow, loads of water, but... You go up to that northwest corner near Wyoming, and and it's dry as a bone. Yeah, yeah. So you had, and I'm not going to ask for locations, but you had a pretty good year. You mentioned <laughs> sage grouse, uh, and hmm. you know, I. You also mentioned that, you know, sage grouse habitat is one of the things that the BLM is concerned about protecting, to a degree. How did that come about? Are you are you able to utilize blinds and get out on those birds? Is that how you photograph them? I have been using, I don't know if you would call it a blind. It's more like a camouflage net um, that, that I, sorry, it just gives you a little bit more maneuverability. But yes, I have been using uh, a blind and, I mean, I was using a 600 mil, sometimes extended to 850 and, and feeling quite comfortable in that range. So it was getting pretty close. Um, but just one of the most amazing spectacles in nature to, to, to witness. It's absolutely amazing. I always tell everybody that, you know, everybody should see that at least once. I wish we had that. I wish we had that kind of look. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you! <laughs> you guys cannot complain about lack of luck. Your your life 
and pursuits are the envy of most of your podcast viewers, so I'm not taking that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me clarify. I meant specifically with sage grouse this year, so fair okay. enough, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, I mean, that, one of the shots I got, and, it, and you know yourselves, there's like a split second when the head's still there, and, and the, the, the balloons are out, if you like, and just getting that shot. And, and I managed to, to get one. And there's a, there's a page on Instagram called Biosapiens, which I hadn't come across before. And that one image got something like 40,000 likes. So, you know, just once you, you kind of get that unique sage grouse moment, it, it can be a little bit transformational. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm actually looking at that shot right now on your page. I love it. It's just so cool. <laughs> Yeah, you did a really good job with the grouse this year. Some of the neat sure. – I love the slower motion stuff you did too, the slower yeah. shutter speed. That shows a lot of motion. Yeah. Really, really creative stuff. Yeah, that's what oh, I, I wanted to talk about is you know, having those different tools in your tool bag and knowing when to pull them out You know, when the, when the light is – you're not light enough to be able to stop the action, try some of these other techniques and, and be able to do some things that – you know, you can't do when the sun's up or it's more difficult to do if you don't have the ability to go to 50 ISO. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And just, and just I think, taking advantage, as you say, of the tools that are in there, but having that, that foresight. And, and I, I've got to be honest, I went with that in mind, but I don't know if that goes back to kind of the early days of club photography when you, you, you know, you're working on panning and you're trying to do slower exposures and that kind of thing. So, so certainly bringing that all together in a natural environment. I think also, if I'm honest, going back two or three times, you, you get past that first almost over excitement moment where it's just bag what you see, you know, and, and then actually not slow this down, take a step back. What are you actually trying to achieve here? Uh, and 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 I think visiting uh, time and again just allows you to get that little bit more uh, pace, uh, appropriate pace uh, into what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I agree fully, and that's why you know we always talk about multiple day trips when you can when you can mm -hmm. swing it because you do get the shots that you want. You you know you might not get the shot you want the on day one, but at least you get the the lay of the land, so to speak. And you start to learn each individual animal's behaviors to the point where you can almost start to get predictive. When you see them yeah. do something, you know what's coming next. And so yeah. when that happens, that's when you're going to get the best shots because you can then think through, you know, those tools that you have banked in your tool bank and and work on maybe predicting when that behavior is going to take place and then nail the shot that you want. You know, the, yeah. the big bull kind of up in Estes Park um, that everybody's got thousands of photos of, <laughs> uh, his his behavior, when he'd throw his head back, it, it started to get a little bit predictive. And you knew when it was going to happen, when he sees another bull that's even coming anywhere close to him, all of a sudden that head's going to go back and he's going to head in the direction of that bull. And I got, you know, yeah. a shot that I've been wanting to get for a long time just because I'd been able to watch him for a couple of days. Well, I mean, you talked about tools and I actually thought about you guys while I was up there because I, I don't do video and I don't have a good excuse other than I, that I just love still photography. But there's one thing the sage grouse do, as you know, which is this bubbling sound when those balloons expand. Mm -hmm. And the noise in the dark is just absolutely fascinating to listen to. If I could record it, probably probably help people sleep at night, just as, as, as these bubbles expand and contract. And I wish I could record that in a photograph, and clearly I can't. So so, so I, I think that that's the one time I thought, do you know what, I should be doing a little bit of video here. You know, the interesting thing is that sound happens when those bellows slap together. So at one, at ah. one point... At the end of the strut, because they'll they'll have a full strut, and, and I know you got several sequences of that, but at one point they lunge forward, and those bellows that are then full will come out and slap together, and that's what makes that sound. But then I'm when interested. they or when a predator comes over, one of the neatest things that 
that I always hear, and you can only hear it, you know, before the shutters start flying. But when a predator flies over and they all hunker down, when they start to relax, you'll hear this. And then they're filling those bellows back up. And that's when they're inhaling. There's several different little inhales. And that's when the air goes back in those bellows. They'll stand up and that's when the strut's going to start again. But those are some of the sounds. I've taken a Zoom recorder out a couple times, just set it out in the sagebrush when I get there well ahead of daylight and just let it go. But you're right. It's it's a neat sound. What what your viewers probably don't know but need to know is what you just (laughs) sacrificed to make that sound. So you might not be aware that poor Ron is missing a filling (laughs) at the front of his mouth. So the pain that he must have gone through to suck in as sharply as that is probably quite excruciating. <laughs> yeah, I've got to get I've got to get some wax and put it in there so I'm not don't have air going across that spot all the time. But so Scott, tell us a little bit about on the grouse. I mean, you know, we've heard Ron's Ron has a certain approach he uses, and you know, I've I've had some real fun adventures trying to photograph grouse and. Um, usually for us, I'm just wondering if it's any different for you. For me, it tends to be, you know, leaving the house around one o'clock in the morning, driving for two to three hours, setting up a blind in the dark, freezing my butt off for three hours until the sun comes up. (laughs) Um, You know, hopefully the grouse are there. They are. You're listening to them in the dark. Like you said, it's an amazing experience. Um, And then the light comes up. Hopefully the predator doesn't fly by or a coyote runs around. Um, anyways, and if, you know, if everything goes well, you might get, you know, a half hour, 45 minutes of really good shooting before the birds leave the lake. Um, and it's a, it's pretty crazy experience. And most of the time in my experience, it's about a 50, 50 proposition. Um, would you relate with that or, you know, how did you approach it? Absolutely. In terms of the time you get up, the travel time, the waiting time, I've got to be honest, I quite enjoy that, that waiting time. Just that is back to that sort of contemplation. And when you've got that backdrop, <laughs> this bubbling going on, I actually find it strangely therapeutic. And then, of course, there's this kind of frantic period um, when, when they're battling and moving and making noise. And suddenly you've, you've gone from nothing to shoot to too many things to shoot almost at the same time, if you're lucky. It's like, where do you point your lens? And, and there is this kind of frenzy for, as you say, 45 minutes to an hour. What I found this time, though, I've gone before, like deliberately the evening before and sort of scouted around and not really found anything. <clears throat> this time I did and actually found that I was getting the grouse in beautiful light. There's no fighting. There's no posturing going on, but just male grouse at, at walking around. I've got some beautiful portraits of just them. Um, it's a different type of behavior. They weren't fighting. They weren't strutting. They were eating. They even got one that was drinking water. Um, you know, between two bits of sage grouse. So that was an, a dimension that I hadn't had before. And it was a really nice way to kind of expand the, the, the sort of typical shot, if you like. But certainly that that time uh, to get up, and I just see this as part of the quest, though. I mean, I have no difficulties getting up at that time in the morning if we've got that kind of purpose in mind. Uh, and knowing there's just the possibility of a great nature experience or a, and hopefully a great photo at the end of it is all I need to get out of bed. Yeah. Uh, well said. No, and I don't disagree at all. I'm not. That sounded like I was complaining. It's just, uh, it is. No, it's part of the adventure. <laughs> part of the adventure. <laughs> well, I was just going to say it's part of the story. I mean, it. Yep. people think that you just roll out there, sit in your car, and all these shots just miraculously come right to you. You know, and yeah. it's when they see what time you have to get up in the morning, when they see that you have to drive an hour and a half to get to some of these locations and um, see how much there is to suffer through because you wanted to dress warm enough to be somewhat comfortable, but you didn't want to dress too warm to be too hot when it's time to walk back to the vehicle. You know, those are all the things that people don't necessarily see. And when they get the opportunity to experience those things, it's not quite as fun as they thought it might be, but they still got to have the experience. You're talking about things aligning. I had a friend that, that did go up, you know, that crazy o'clock drive, got there, and then, it, as you described, a predator came over. All the sage grouse left. 
and they didn't come back again. So, so I mean, you can have the rug pulled from under you what, what, after you've made all that effort and then basically nothing happens. So things still need to align uh, ni- nicely from you. I was quite lucky. The site that, that I visit it, it is, um, you're not having to hike miles out into the country. It's very, very close to sort of a parking situation and just get your your, your blind set up and, and, and good, good to go from that point of view. But as you say, it can all just vanish in an instant if they get spooked. Yeah. Yeah. But, and we've talked about it before, but the actually effort, I think, makes it that much more uh, rewarding. You know, when it does work and it comes together and you've suffered a little bit and you've gone through all that work and effort, and then when you get the shots you're looking for, it makes it worth every bit of it. And that's what keeps us going back year after year, you know. But it absolutely does. But I do remember being in club photography and club competitions and being warned don't expect your photo to be judged on the effort you put in because they have no idea (laughs) and and sometimes the easiest shots that took no imagination creativity or effort are the ones that win the competitions so this is about personal satisfaction isn't it just knowing what you put it into it's got to be your own reward it's not going to be rewarded by the buying public (laughs) (laughs) very good point i think that's a good pro tip right there (laughs) yeah we just had uh steve kirkpatrick on the podcast and that is exactly one of the things that he talked about is that when he first started sending images into editors, the editor doesn't know the story. The editor's not married yeah. to the experience. They're looking at the the technical quality of the image and the storytelling capability of the image. And I think you know, just like you're saying with competition, it's just, it's the same thing. Unless your image tells that story, nobody else will ever know. Yeah, absolutely. So what's on the horizon? You've got this big gallery opening now. You've got to keep it full with fresh images. What's on the horizon for you? <laughs> it's, it's interesting you say that because we started off, um, and I, I've got a full-time job alongside this, as you know. Tony and Evan, are, are they're full-time in photography. So, so they're there mostly through the week. So Kevin and I feel we have to kind of fill that space at the weekend so certainly on Saturdays I'm trying to be there Sunday we realized it just you know it was just going to kill photography for all of us so we're not opening on Sunday anymore so that's kind of my day so uh, moose baby season is coming up I've got a good friend I'm hoping to to travel and uh, see um, uh, some of that life uh, coming coming through uh, soon the ospreys are kind of live right now and I've just it's the first time I've really kind of shooted Ospreys in earnest. The the front shot of the dive and, and pluck is still eluding me. I've got plenty from the rear. <laughs> I've got some wonderful kind of close-up scenes of Osprey actually devouring some of that fish. But I'm hoping once the chicks are born, uh, there's a little bit more active fishing. So that's on the cards over the next couple of weeks. And then now that COVID is starting to relax, we've got a family trip back to Spain, in northern Spain, in uh, July which again is just another excuse for um, some really self-indulgent landscape photography. So the coast around that northern area is absolutely stunning. So uh, I will hug my family and probably not see much of them for, for two weeks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I soak up the northern Spanish coast, which is just fantastic. It, it, it's very re- um, reminiscent of the coast along Oregon. Uh, real kind of wild and rugged and loads of waves and gnarly rocks so i was able to visit oregon last year and see thor's well for the first time oh yeah that's familiar. yeah just amazing experience for those that haven't seen it it's like a collapsed sea cave where the water kind of surges up and back down again it creates a very dramatic effect at high tide so so that's an amazing experience here and i hope to sort of replicate some of that kind of feel in northern spain in july oh i can't wait to see what you get up there is it also going to be any wildlife opportunities while you're there? Is it going to be mainly focused on the landscape stuff? It will be mainly focused for me on landscape and wildlife. There, there, uh, sorry, landscape and seascapes. There is wildlife there, a lot of great kind of bird photography. Um, but I tend, when I'm there, I've got a group of friends uh, that I've known for years, and they're all landscape photographers. So it tends to be a real kind of dedicated social time and 
uh, CC skate time with them. They, they've got a great name. They're called the Canonicos, which is basically a contraction of Canon and Nikon together <laughs> in Spanish. And it's, it's a wonderful little group. And they basically, I don't know how much photography they do these days. They just seem to party quite hard and, and, and then put the odd <laughs> seascape in there just to sort of fill things up. But it's, uh, it, it, it'll be a fun couple of weeks, but not much in the wildlife front. So. Now, are you still active with you were with the colorectal cancer cancer excuse me the colorectal cancer society you were kind of a board member i believe or and a and almost a spokesman for a while are you still involved in that yeah I've, i'm still very very keen very strong advocate i think i've pulled back a, a little bit um uh, from that world i think if I'm honest, when 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 you work through stage four cancer, then thinking about it constantly uh, can be quite a pressure from that point of view. So I've I've got a, a different day job now, which is um, I develop strategic messages for for, for messaging for organisations, and uh, funnily enough, it's mostly in healthcare. So I've still got a leg uh, in that world, but I'm not quite so focused. But the clear those key points of year. Like March is a big awareness month for colorectal cancer. So I'll still get involved there. And I still have many, many friends and sort of fellow advocates in the community. So, so I'm really supportive, but a little bit less active. And I think especially now that the gallery is, is up and running, it, it, you know yourself. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a tremendous commitment from a time point mm-hmm. of view. So something had to give a little bit. And I think that's possibly one of the things. Well, when I saw the gallery was opening, I... The first thing that I kind of wondered, it wasn't about, you know, your images certainly need to be out there. But the first thing that I wondered was about time and how the heck you were going to balance everything that you were doing the last time that we talked uh, with with everything that you had going on. So I'm I'm kind of relieved to hear that you, uh, you found <laughs> a way to alleviate some of that stress. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I think I'm also very grateful, as I mentioned, to Tony and Evan, who, who are there the bulk of the time. And I think it's quite different from, I mean, I absolutely love photography. I, I would love to be doing that exclusively in full time. But the reality is I'm not dependent on photography for all of my income. And, and they are, you know, and so it's their livelihood and they have to be there really, really working it day in, day out. So credit to them that, that they are there you know, uh, six, six days a week, uh, just make, making this work. I really only have to cover the rent, you know, in, in order to kind of break even. Sure. They're, they're feeding their family through this. So so it's it's very much a working gallery. This isn't a showcase hobby thing. This is a working gallery. They are making their livelihood from, as I say. Tony's a framer alongside the photography. Um it's a studio for Evan in terms of bringing portrait work in there as well. So when you go in there, there's a lot of hustle and bustle. It's not just a museum type atmosphere. There's actually work going on uh, in the background. And I think that actually adds to the atmosphere. It's one of the reasons that fellow photographers seem to like it. You bet. Well, that's, that's great. And it give, gives people the opportunity to see everything from different, you know, just about every perspective that you can imagine just in one yeah, location. Been- so. Is that interesting? Is that, from, from, sorry, Jason. No, I'm sorry. I was just going to ask if that studio space um, you mentioned is that something you guys have are renting out for other photographers to use and stuff, or is it is it just strictly for their, you guys' own use? I think um, Evans, the, the portrait guy, so it's largely his his space, if you like. But I'm absolutely convinced he, he would be happy to to add to the revenue in terms of re- renting that out. So. I mean, if people want to follow up or engage, we we have a, a Facebook page um, at Gallery Six Denver. Is, is how you would search that on Facebook, and you can start a dialogue with us and, and ask those sorts of uh, questions. So, I was just going to say it's interesting for me having come from the kind of big corporate uh, commercial world to being, you know, almost like a self-employed gallery co- uh, collaborator, and just the things that you have to think about at that kind of very ground level you know how you build relations with your local community how you get advertising moving how you get social media moving how you get um, some of the promotional work going health and safety we always had to think about people falling over and hurting themselves before we thought about where we put the pictures and it's just a completely (laughs) different 
challenge yeah. to, to the sort of virtual space that most of us are used to moving in now is actually how you bring a safe and attractive gallery to life for, for, for people in, in the community. Add to that the challenges of COVID, and it's certainly been a kind of interesting time. So we had a good start with a couple of magazines, though. So Westward and 303, which are big magazines in Denver and Colorado, gave us a really, really nice uh, piece of coverage. And there seems to be this acceptance that there is a vacuum and we're filling it a little bit. And, and our hope is that that sparks others. We, we're not trying to own this space. I'd love it if if other fellow photographers decided, you know what, this is the way to go and started to open their own galleries as well. Yeah, that's... Uh... Like Jason said, it's it's an excellent opportunity for other photographers to be able to come in and and see, visit with you guys, see the frame shop, you know, see the studio space, and uh, and help them with their craft, and but also a place like you alluded to earlier where people can come and just and just visit. I mean, I'm picturing a little cafe, coffee shop. I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> right. We we do have an espresso machine there. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. And and uh, funnily enough, I mean, first Fridays are, are quite a big deal in the art world, actually bringing people in the first Friday of a month and you'll stay open later into the evenings. And we've been a little bit hesitant to push that too hard through COVID because you shouldn't be sort of creating social events, but as that relaxes, we'll, every first Friday of the month, we'll stay open late. We'll have beer, wine, a uh, few snacks, etc., and just try, try and create a little bit of a social atmosphere. So that'll be certainly something to watch out for on the, on the, on the promotional front. Excellent. Oh, very cool. Well, we'll put a link to the gallery and then uh, also, you know, we'll, we'll throw the website link on there as well. Scott, where can people find you personally, aside from the Gallery 6 link? Yeah, of course. So um, in terms of the kind of uh, social media world, I go by the name Wilson Axby um, Photography, which I think I've explained on the, the podcast the last time. But mm-hmm. Scott Wilson is such a common name. If you search me on Google, I might come up on page 50. Um, my wife's <laughs> name is Axby, so I simply put our names together. And it's also the name of our children. So, so both Andrew and Alba ha- have that as their as their surname. So Wilson Axby Photography, and and you just search that at Wilson Axby on Instagram. Uh, Facebook is at Wilson Axby, and my website is wilsonaxby.com. So so once you've got your tongue around Wilson Axby, I'm fairly easy to put, find from from that point. So if you're not writing it up, it's wilsonaxpe.com. So. Yeah. yeah, and real quick, real quick too, just for those that might want to go back and didn't listen to the original episode, um, I was cheating a little bit and looking it up while we were chatting. It is actually season two, episode twenty-five, and it aired on July 9th of twenty nineteen. Okay. So if you got you guys really ought to, if you haven't listened to it, or even if you have, go back and listen to it again. It's a really inspirational episode. So. Yeah, we can treat that as part one and this is part two. We can put a, <laughs> a link to that podcast. I think we can put in the show notes as well. So, But Scott, I really appreciate you coming back on the show. Again, you know, our it's always a pleasure. most popular episode was your, was your first one. We'll follow it up with this one. And I would encourage everybody to get down to Studio 6 and see some of those horse images, but also the, the landscape images. And, you know, your partners, I'm excited to see their work as well. But uh, you're truly world class as a as an individual and as a photographer, Scott. And I I owe you a Swift Fox trip because last time you came up, <laughs> I got great images a couple of days before and you came up and it was a bust. <laughs> Hey, but we, we had a good time and it was good to, to chat for three hours in the car with seeing absolutely nothing. <laughs> Staring at, you know, a few blades of grass. <laughs> yeah, but that is that is that is wildlife photography. If that it was is. guaranteed every time, it would be easy and everyone would do it. So Yeah, that's a fact. So true. <laughs> yeah. So, Guy, honestly, it's such a pleasure talking to you guys. So. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Yeah. It's really nice no, to finally pleasure's all meet ours. you. Yep. So I, I I will absolutely honor the, the date, Jason, if you want a little tour around Sandwash Basin. Awesome. And it sounds like, uh, I think, 
shooting the horses in the wild desert uh, sounds pretty cool as well. So we can get some sort of reciprocal going. 100%. Come on out anytime. Let me know. Super. (laughs) Thank you all for listening to Wild and Exposed. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in town. Mm -mm. Round and round the world we'll go.